you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Future Mac here. We are still looking for a name for our correspondence section. There is still a poll on the Facebook group that has a handful of votes. Oddly, the one that's currently winning is one that I came up with while writing the poll in order to fill out the options, so I don't know what that says. We actually have been getting some great messages lately, and we will definitely be talking about them in a future episode. We just didn't have the opportunity to record anything this week. So, in summary... Keep sending us messages. We love them. We will talk about them more. Um, and if you have thoughts about what we should call our correspondence section, we're still taking suggestions, and the poll is still going. Thank you. Previously on The Toy and Bukuling. The Toy and Bukuling. I don't know. The Toy. I just call it The Toy because Irish is hard. So yeah, we have Cucullin, and he's the biggest ancient Irish hero, in terms of prominence or physical size? Prominence, but when he hulks out, probably also physical size. But otherwise, just picture like a really scrawny 17-year-old kid. Okay, maybe not scrawny because he does actually fight before he goes and hulks out. But he's 17 in this story. So he's not that big of a guy. He's in, he's in puberty. Just zits. Just picture like... A gym rat with zits on his face. All right. Is basically what I'm going to go with. <laughs> so we have Cacullin, and this is, I guess, the biggest Irish epic that we have. It's almost a national epic. And we talked about how we've got the Ulstermen and the Connachtmen, and they're fighting over... <laughs> cows because Queen Maeve and her husband Aleel were basically having a big measuring contest over who has more stuff and who's the better king or queen, like who deserves who. And they equal each other in everything except that Aleel has one more really nice cow that Maeve cannot equal. And so she's like, babe, I need a cow so that I can equal you. And he's like, yeah, but Honey, it's fine. It's fine. You're already the Queen of Ireland. Why do you need any more of this? And she goes, no, I need this cow. So they launch an invasion, basically, mm-hmm. into Ulster to take this fancy brown or red, depending on the translation, bull that she really wants. And meanwhile, the Ulstermen come out to fight, but they also can't come out to fight because they're plagued by this like nine days sickness, which is basically, depending on how you want to look at it, either severe PMS symptoms or like labor symptoms, like going into labor. So they're, they can't fight because they're dealing with these symptoms. But given the fact that it, it says it's like a nine day sickness, and that's basically the length of PMS, I'm going to go with PMS symptoms. So basically, they can't fight because they have to deal with PMS symptoms and they're not used to that because they've been cursed. So take that as you will. (laughs) I do appreciate the gender bending in Irish uh, literature. It's one of the most wonderful parts about Irish literature. So that's basically where we were. Uh, We had Cucullin who set up a kind of a totem with Ogham written on it, which 
kept everybody from passing. It was a challenge that showed his sort of magic powers as well as his physical strength. And Fergus and the men refused to pass it. So they deforest part of Ireland to go around it. And in this section, we have a lot of place naming or Denshanicus, I think is how it's said. It's the place lore of how each place they go past gets its name. So each one has like a little story and Ireland is known for this. That's why there's a word for it. And yeah, you'll find that everywhere, everywhere to this day. And then Maeve is like, well, what's the deal with this Kukulin anyway? And Fergus says, well, let me tell you. And so now we're going to get into his childhood deeds, how he gets his name Cucullin, which means the Hound of Cullen. And then we're going to get into some of the slaughter. Like there's several chapters which are just titled like the death of this person, the death of that person. And so I've picked out what I think are the most entertaining. So we don't have to go through the entire slaughter fest, but take that as you will. If you are interested, there's plenty there. So I'm using the... Faraday version primarily, but there's also the Joseph Dunn version, which is a little more archaic and they use both manuscripts. So together you get this full picture of what the toyne is in full. Okay. So there is our recap. And with that, I will jump straight into it. Again, I apologize for my butchering of the Irish names. I'm pretty good at it, but I'm not great at it. So this section is titled, Here Are His Boyish Deeds, or His Boyhood Deeds. So again, the Irish are very straightforward with these things. He was brought up, said Fergus, by his mother and father in Meg Murthme. The stories of the boys of Emain were related to him, for there are three fifties of boys there at play. It is thus that Conquivir enjoys his sovereignty, a third of the day watching the boys, another third playing chess, another third drinking beer till sleep seizes him. So, the life of a king. There's no governing involved? <laughs> it does not say that there's any governing involved. He just watches the boys, plays chess, and drinks beer. Not sure about a king who spends a third of his day watching the boys. <laughs> it's not great language. I think it means watching them like play sport, play at hunting, train, etc. But it's not a great translation, shall we say? I'm going to see what the other translation says, just because I'm interested. It says peeping in the windows. A watching the youths play games of skill and hurling, which makes sense. The next third of the day, playing draughts and chess. The last third, feasting on meat and a quaffing ale till he passes out. Pretty straightforward. The life of a ruler. That was bad kinging. <laughs> that was bad kinging. <laughs> there is no more a warrior in Ireland than Conquivir, basically, is what, what the point is there. Because apparently those three qualities that you want in a fearsome warrior in Ireland, Cucullin aside. So Cucullin asked his mother to let him go to the boys. And his mother said, well, you shall not go until you have a company of warriors. Like, you need a troop. You need to have a gang of boys to go out with. And Cucullin says, I deem it too long to wait for it. Show me on which side of Ireland it is. Northward so, said his mother, and the journey is hard. And Cucullin goes out, regardless of his mother's warning, and brings with him a shield and a toy spear and a playing club and a ball. So he's got like a toy shield, a toy spear, and his hurling stuff, essentially. Oh, oh, okay. 
I was going to ask what the difference was between a toy club and an actual club, but it's the type for a game, not like... Yes, okay. for hurling, for hurling, which is still very popular here in Ireland. And it's it's actually kind of terrifying because it's like a cross between, I don't know, rugby and baseball. So you have these flat bats and these hard balls, and you basically whack these balls as fast as hell through the air and kind of hope that you don't get hit. Yeah. And I would hate to be hit by one of these balls. Like it would, nope, no, you would probably break an arm fairly easily. My first thought when you said cross between rugby and baseball is, oh, so it's rugby with weapons. (laughs) Yes, essentially. (laughs) Yeah. So he's got his little toys, which are still fairly useful to use as weapons. And he goes to the boys without binding them to protect him. So he's not protecting his stuff. And no one used to go to them in their play field till his protection was guaranteed. And he did not know this because he just decided to go out. Basically, you've got these rival gangs and Kukulin not being a part of this group of lads goes into the midst of them without protection or permission. And one of the lads, Falamon, says, this boy insults us. Besides, we know he is of the Ulstermen. Throw at him. And so they throw their 350s of toy spears at him, and they all remain standing in his shield. So he catches, apparently, 150 toy spears on his shield. Okay, so toy spear doesn't mean blunt spear. Apparently not. I don't know what the difference between a spear and a toy spear is. One says, for entertainment only. I guess, or it's like slightly shorter and slightly blunter than you might actually go to war with. So that didn't work. And so then they throw all the balls, all the hurling balls at them, and he takes them, each single ball in his bosom. So apparently he's just taking it. And then they throw the hurling clubs at him because that's not enough. And he warded them off so that they did not touch him, and he took a bundle of them on his back. And then contortion seized him, and it says, You would have thought that it was a hammering wherewith each little hair had been driven into his head with a rising with which he arose. You would have thought there was a spark of fire on every single hair. He shut one of his eyes so that it was not wider than the eye of a needle, and he opened the other so that it was as large as the mouth of a mead cup. He laid bare from his jawbone to his ear. He opened his mouth to the jaw so that his gullet was visible. The hero's light rose from his head. What that is, I have no idea. Then he strikes at the boys. He overthrows 50 of them before they reached the door of Emain. Nine of them came over me and Conquerbeer as we were playing chess. So he throws basically nine boys over to where Conquerbeer and Fergus are sitting. And then he springs over the chessboard after the nine of them and Conquerbeer catches him by the elbow. So this is the first instance of the torque. A couple things. I think I've heard of the hero's light. I want to say it makes an appearance in the Lay of Havelock the Dane, but oh, my memory is you may be right. not serving me well. We may have to do that at some point and find out. Yes, definitely. Second, that thing with the eyes, it sounds like you're describing Baylor. Baylor. Yeah, he's another uh, Irish myth guy, isn't he? He had the one big eye. I don't know. Spell his name? B-A-L-O-R. Oh, he looks like a Balrog. Shocker. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Big shocker. <laughs> uh, he's a leader of the Fomorians. Oh, and he's got like one big giant eye. Yeah. 
Oh. No, this is different because in this one, one eye gets really small and the other one like gets huge. And then basically his mouth falls open. So he's basically turning himself inside out is what Kakulin is basically doing. He hulks out. This is, yeah, this is what I mean by him hulking out. So this is his, uh, it's been translated in different ways. It's been translated as warp spasm or warp or torque. It is not a pretty look either way. But we do see this come up again. But basically we're saying that this has happened to him since he's been a kid. Man, all of these pictures of Baylor are making him a cyclops. (laughs) I don't think it ever says he has only one eye, just that one of his eyes is big. Hmm. Oh, he's killed by Luke. That makes sense. Well, it says he's an interpretation and a personification of the sun, which would make sense that he only has one eye. Yeah. All right. That's interesting. The evil eye. Interesting. But in any case, Kukulin hulks out, essentially, and he goes into this warp spasm. And so Conquerbeard catches him by his elbow and says, these boys are not being very well treated, which seems like an understatement for the circumstances. But Kukulin says in reply... Lawful for me, O friend Conquivir. I came to them from my home to play from my mother and father, and they have not been good to me. So he's saying, they started it. And Conquivir asks what this kid's name is. And Kukulin, and this is before he got his name as Kukulin, says, Satanta Mech Swaltum am I, said he, the son of Dektra, I think, your sister. It was not fitting to hurt me here. And Conquibear asks, why are the boys not bound to protect you? Like, why are you not a part of this group? And Kukulin says, well, I, I didn't know about this. I wasn't, a, I didn't know what the etiquette was. I just showed up to play. Then Conquibear's like, well, yeah, that sounds right. Okay, go on. And he lets him go. And then Kukulin keeps going and attacks all the other guys. Why? So he's just, because <laughs> it's, it's justified, I guess. But Kukulin is trying to explain his actions here. Like, it sounded like he was defusing the situation, but Kukulin's like, all right, so now that we've settled that, I'm going to go beat up some more people. I'm just going to keep going, man. And so then we get into another, like, brief section. So a little bit later on, Fergus continues the story and says, well, once when he was a kid, he used not to sleep in a main machta till the morning. And Conquibir is like, well, why, why don't you sleep? And Kukulin replies and says, I don't do it unless it is equally high at my head and my feet. So he won't sleep unless it's perfectly flat, I guess, is the meaning here. And then a stone pillar was put by Conquibir at his head and another at his feet, and a bed was made for him separately. And another time, a certain man went to awaken him, and he struck him with his fist in his forehead, so that it took the front of his forehead onto the brain, so that he overthrew the pillar with his arm. So what this means, I don't necessarily know, except that it is extraordinarily gory. Yes, I got that much. And Fergus concludes, from that time forward, no one dared awaken him until he woke himself. So there's no point in trying to wake Kukulun up because you'll die. That's fair. Another time, he was playing ball in the playfield east of Emain. He went alone against three fifties of the boys. He used to defeat them in every game in this way, always. The boys lay hold of him therewith. 
he piled his fist upon them until 50 of them were killed. He took to flight then, till he was under the pillow of Conquivir's bed. All the Ulstermen rose round him, and I rose, and Conquivir himself. Then he rose under the bed, and put the bed from him with the 30 heroes who were on it, till it was in the middle of the house. Then the Ulstermen sat round him in the house, and we arranged and made peace then between the boys and him. So, apparently, (laughs) he has not gotten over this issue with these 150 boys, because he ends up killing 50 of them in a quote-unquote ball game. And knowing that this is wrong, presumably, he runs underneath the bed. And when everyone tries to come and fish him out from underneath the bed, he pushes them off the bed like, what is it, like Mongo? in Blazing Saddles with the piano. He's just like holding them all back and crushing all of them until they make peace. This is such a weird image. I'm having trouble (laughs) with it. (laughs) The point of all of these, the point of the the boyhood tales of Kukulin is to try and give some background to his heroic biography and to sort of explain that he's had these powers since boyhood. So we've we've established that he's got superhuman strength. We've established that he's killed a lot of people from early on, whether this is justified or not. And we've explained that he's got this torque sort of thing going on. Yeah, he sounds like a dangerous person to have around. Yeah, which most heroes are. And this is the theme that I really enjoy about some of the older ancient heroes, like the more you read into them, the more you realize they're not good people. Odysseus is not a good person. Cucullin is not a very good person. Achilles. Achilles, not a good person. Aix, what is his name? Aix, Skalagrimson? Aix. Not a good person. Yeah. Yeah. Not a good person. Egel. Egel, yeah. It's how it's spelled, but not how it's pronounced. Beowulf. And so not all, a good person. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, Beowulf, not a good person. And so you've got all of these heroes who are not good people, but are the stereotype. They're the figure that is upheld in their society of who you want to be. And so what do we take from this? Like, how, how do we talk about the hero? And then on top of that, actually, Professor Powell gave us this assignment in undergrad was, okay, is Beowulf a hero or a monster? How does that work? What is the integration there? Because at some point, all heroes have to face their own monstrousness or are in some way monsters so that they can defeat other monsters. And at that point, once they become monstrous, they're outcasts of their own society. So the hero undertakes the role of almost being a scapegoat. So it's a lauded position, but it's also kind of a curse. And so we literally see that when it comes to Kukulin in this instance with his warp spasm. And it ends really badly for him. Uh, Spoiler. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. So anyway, uh, that's one of the themes that I'm really interested in, in exploring more is there's a fair number of heroes in these myths that aren't good people and why do we laud them is the question. But regardless, we've had this boyhood deed and so they make peace with the families of these boys who've been killed. And then we get to another little episode. Where is it? So another time, the Ulster men were in their weakness, which is to say they're going through whatever illness, curse, they're PMSing and they can't fight, so. Wait, 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 is, is it ever explained why they have 
like why the whole clan has PMS every every month? It's not necessarily explicitly said. There's a separate tale that says it's a curse of the goddess Maka, who imposed it after being forced to race a chariot while she was pregnant. So she's like, y'all are going to pay for this. I'm going to give you all PMS. So it is sort of a woman's punishment. Yeah, I've heard of Maka. So apparently that's where that comes from. So they are... <laughs> They are in their weakness, so to speak. And Fergus says, There was not among us weakness on women and boys, nor on anyone who is outside of the country of the Ulstermen, nor on Cucullin and his father. So this doesn't affect boys, it doesn't affect children, it doesn't affect women, it just affects grown men. And only the ones who were there at the time. Yes. And so no one dared to shed their blood for their suffering springs on him who wounds them. So if you hurt one of these guys, you inherit the curse. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's pretty nice. It, like, it carries on. Three times, nine men came to us from the Isles of Ferkech. I think is how you say it. It's F-A-I-C-H-E. They went over our back court when we were in our weakness. The women screamed in court. The boys were in the playfield. They came in at the cries. When the boys saw the dark black men, they all take flight except Cullen alone. He plies hand stones and his playing club on them. He kills nine of them, and they leave fifty wounds upon him, and they go forth besides. A man who did these deeds when his five years were not full, I don't know what that means, it would be no wonder that he should have come to the edge of the boundary and that he should not have cut off the heads of the yonder four. What? I don't know. This section confuses me, because what does it mean that these men are dark black men? I don't know. Are they nefarious? Are they actual... Are they black-skinned? Are they painted black? I don't know. I'm gonna assume it's hair. It could be. Let me see what the other translation says. The other translation just says swarthy. Oh. So it could be like Tolkien using the word fair, meaning tall or beautiful to look upon and not actually like fair-skinned, but I don't know. So swarthy or dark or however you'd like to interpret that. So, in any case, these guys steal into the court, attack the women, and the only person to defend them is Kukulun, because the other boys run away, and most of the men are in their weakness. And Fergus says, he did this, oh, okay, okay, he did this at the close of, <laughs> he did this at the close of five years after his birth. Oh. So, <laughs> so he's apparently five years old when this occurs. And then he says, okay, now he's 17 years old, so we should expect great deeds of him, because if he did that when he was five, then, you know, he's doing a lot more now. Was he also five when he was at the, um, with those 350s of other boys? I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us whether those are in order or not, but given that all the other boys... Like, it does, it does talk about the boys running away. So whether this is the same troop of boys, I don't know. Whether it's in order, I don't know. But at this point, he's killed nine intruders and at least 50 other boys in a quote-unquote ball game of hurling. Right, so nine enemies and 50 people who happened to be nearby. Yes, over the course, like, between his being... Five and 17. He's done this. Mm -hmm. this. This is not a good success rate. I don't want him around. <laughs> no, uh, he is not 
not a great kid. So then we get to what his name is, how he gets this name. The slaying of the Smith's Hound by Cuchulain and the reason he is called Cuchulain. Again, the Irish stories are very straightforward in how they name these things. So Conquivere hears about Cuchulain. He sees Cuchulain growing up and says, come with me to this feast because I want you to be my guest. And Cuchulain says, well, I've had, I haven't had enough play yet, but I'll come because he's a cheeky little apparently. They all go to the feast. Cullen is the man hosting the feast and says, do you expect anyone to follow you? Conquivere says, no, no, just us. And he did not remember the appointment with his foster son who was following him because Cullen is now adopted by Conquivere. He's his foster son, which is fairly standard at this time. It's pretty normal for high-ranking noblemen to adopt in younger men of prominent families and raise them as foster sons. Right. Fostered system. Yeah. We saw that in our Thanksgiving episode. Yes, we did. Uh, Guthrie was being fostered. And I'm trying to think. Brutus was also the foster son of Caesar. Did not know that. Mm-hmm. So when he says, etu brute, he actually supposedly said this in Greek, which is kaisu technon, which is and you too, my son, which basically, in terms of how he said it, basically means see you in hell, punk. I would need a breakdown of the connotations of ancient Greek to figure that one out. <laughs> I've read a little bit about it, but I'm fairly sure that it was actually in Greek and it was kaisu technon. So the implication there is, and so, so instead of, and you, Brutus, it's not a betrayal of a friend, but it's the betrayal of a foster son. That is significant and that, that is factual. Whether, whether you get the implication of it being basically like an up yours or not, I don't necessarily know whether you could read that in, but it was the betrayal of a foster son. I do remember from Beowulf, Hrothgar tried to make Beowulf his foster son, just apparently out of... That's what what you do with someone who killed monsters for you, and Wealthy Al has to kind of shut it down. Yeah, she does. I actually have a really interesting paper with with that in it, because I found that a really interesting episode. The queen, whose name I can never get correct. Wealthy Al. Yeah, I'm just going to call her the queen. I can't do it. (laughs) I'm so bad. So bad at pronunciation for these things. But no, so she she has to step in and say, like, no, you can't do this. You already have a son. But at the same time, when you have this sort of economy of honor going on, the king has to repay the warrior in kind for the deed that he's done. And when you've had Grendel feasting on people for so long and terrifying the entire kingdom, what matches that? Well, the only thing that matches that is being the foster son of the king. But Wealthy Al can't allow that because that's her son that would be displaced. Yeah, exactly. And so he sort of, Hrothgar sort of screws up the entire kingship. Or at least you could argue that it's Beowulf's fault, but I would argue that it's Hrothgar's fault because he doesn't have anybody who's got the balls to take on Grendel and he won't do it either. Well, he's old. Yeah, he's old. I know, but you've got Unferth. That's true. And Unferth, like it was, it's supposed to be Unferth's job, theoretically. But that's a, that's a side conversation. Anyway, where were we? Oh, yes. So we have Conquivir and Cuchulain. And Cuchulain is now Conquivir's foster son. And so Conquivir shows up at this feast and he forgets that Cuchulain is coming along afterwards. Because Cuchulain's like, yeah, but I want to keep playing in the field. Because he's still how old? We don't know. 
between 5 and 17, but he's been invited to the, fe- the feast. Cullen now says, I have a watchdog. There are three chains on him and three men to each chain. Let him be slip, or like slipped out of his chains, uh, because of our cattle and stock, and let the court be shut. Let slip the dogs of watch. Yes. <laughs> Then the boy comes. The dog attacks him. He went on with his play. Still, he threw his ball and threw the club after it so that it struck the ball. I think it means he's swinging his club here. But one stroke was not greater than the other. And he threw his toy spear after them and he caught it before falling. And it did not hinder his play, though the dog was approaching him. So he's just chucking all of his toys and having a great time here. It's like he's juggling. (laughs) Or something. (laughs) <laughs> I want to see if the other translation makes any more sense of this, but it really doesn't. Yeah, I'm starting to question the sobriety of whoever wrote this down. <laughs> yeah. The lad had not any means of defense with him, but he hurled an unerring cast of the ball so that it passed through the gullet of the watchdog's neck and carried the guts with him out through his back door and laid hold of the hound by the two legs and dashed him upon a pillar stone that was near him so that every limb sprang apart so that he broke the bits all over the ground. That seems wildly excessive. (laughs) It really, really does. So, like, you took Chacolin for your court, right? I think so. I'm glad you <laughs> have this decision. <laughs> I feel like I have a very violent court. I feel like you got Chacolin on the one side, and then a certain emperor who's very mild mannered on the other, just staring at him and his horrible table manners. So, Conkabir heard the yelp of the dog, which I'm surprised it had time to yelp, given that a hurling ball is going through its guts. And Conquevere and his people could not move. They weaned that they would not find the lad alive before them. So they figure that Kakolin's dead, because this is a dog who has to be held back by three men. Alas, O oh warriors, cried Conquevere, in no good luck have we come to enjoy this feast. How so? asked all. So just picture like a giant chorus of people going, How so? The little lad who has come to meet me, my sister's son, Satanta of the son of Sultame, is undone through the hound. As one man arose all the renowned men of Ulster. Through a door of the house was thrown wide open, and they all rushed out in the other direction, out over the palings of the fortress. But as fast as they all got there, faster than all arrived Fergus, and he lifted the little lad from the ground on the slope of his shoulder and bore him into the presence of Conquibir, and they put him on Conquibir's knee. And a great alarm arose amongst them that the king's sister's son should have all but been killed. And when Cullen came out, he saw that his slaughterhound was in many pieces. He felt his heart beating against his breast, and he went into the house. Welcome thy coming, little lad, said Cullen, because of thy father and thy mother, but not welcome is thy coming for thine own sake. So he's basically saying, like, you're welcome here, but you've really screwed this up. What hast thou against the lad? queried Conquevere. Not luckily for me hast thou come to quaff my ale and drink and eat my food, for my substance is now a wealth gone to waste, and my livelihood is a livelihood lost now after my dog. He hath kept honor and life for me. Good was the friend thou hast robbed me of, even my dog, in that he tended my herds and flocks and stock for me. He was the protection of all our cattle, both afield and at home. Which, this is a big deal. To be fair, yeah. as ridiculous as this entire telling is and how gory 
the death of this hound is, you really do want to have a good dog to protect your herds because that is actually your livelihood at this point in time. So Cullen's upset here is completely well warranted, but so is Concavere's joy at his foster son not being dead. Concavere is not good at things. <laughs> He's really not. Be not angered, O Cullen, my master, said the little boy. It is no great matter, for I will pass a just judgment upon it. What judgment will thou pass, lad? Concavere asked. If there is a whelp of the breed of that dog in Aaron, he shall be reared by me till he be fit to do business as was his sire. Till then, I myself will be the hound to protect the flocks and the cattle and the land, and even the man. And I will safeguard the entire plain, and no one will carry off a flock or herd without me knowing about it. So Kukulin is saying... I will be your guard dog, which is why he's called Kukulun, which means the hound or the wolf hound of Kulun. I would not take that offer. Because <laughs> again, so far he's killed more people by accident than on purpose. So I don't want him around my household or my flock. Okay, to be fair, he could have killed those 50 kids on purpose. That's not better. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm just saying. It's sort of implied that he did it on purpose. He's a dangerous person to have around. And given the fact that he's like five or eight years old at this point, it's just, it's bad. In all ways, this is bad. I would feel my flock was less well protected if he were out there than if it was just loose. Wandering. Yeah, because like a sheep might offend him and he'd dismember it. Valid. So that is how Kukulin gets his name at this point. And then... There's a couple more stories from his childhood. Okay, so there's another section here where there's a local champion. And this almost has the makings of a fairy tale here, because this champion is the champion of the land. And in this section, Kokolin challenges this champion here, this hero. And when he does so, he basically completely decimates him. He reduces him by (laughs) one-tenth? No, but he completely slaughters the guy. And (laughs) I'm sorry for my pedantry. I couldn't resist. No, I think it's beautiful. In order to try and make pay for this, they demand some sort of recompense. And Kukulin hears from one of his watchmen that there is a man in a chariot coming to you. He will shed the blood of every man who is in the court unless he is taken and unless naked women go to him. Back up, what? <laughs> yes, I know. This is, is this a demand Kukulin is making or someone else? So I'm already confused by the structure of like the sentences and stuff. I know. This is what Kukulin is demanding. Or rather, he's not demanding that the women go naked in front of him, but this is what these people think will stop him. How old is Kukulin at this time? Between 5 and 17. Well... For a certain portion of that age, that'll probably work. Yeah, you know, especially since we're, we're going through his life. So he's probably in his teenage years at this point. I am like 99% sure that teenage boys are easily distracted by naked women. So that is a reasonable strategy. You know, biology, it'll work every time. And so they're trying this and Kukulin speaks out a 
geish. And we've talked about geish before. It's both an insult and a curse with a false intention towards somebody, or you're wishing somebody very, very, very bad things, very ill intention. It's also a waterfowl. Is it? Geese. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so bad. Geesh. Geesh. Okay, anyway. Yes, so he says, I swear by the god by whom the Ulstermen swear, unless a man is found to fight with me, I will shed the blood of everyone who is in the fort. So Kukulin's like going at this, and Conkavir just says, Naked women, go to meet him. So he'd send out the naked women, is essentially what he's saying here. And the women of Emain go to meet him with their bare breasts before him. And the wife of Conkavir goes out with them and says, these are the warriors who you will meet today. And apparently Kukulun's reaction is that he covers his face, whether out of decency or shock or whatever, I don't know. I would not expect him to cover his face out of decency given his previous actions of killing people. Yeah, he seems indecent. But who knows? You know, maybe he kills people, but he's a prude. Mm. Maybe it's a compensation issue. We don't know. Oh, you mean he's American? <laughs> Who knows? So he covers his face, and the heroes of Amain seize him and throw him into a vessel of cold water. And the vessel bursts around him, and the second vessel in which he's thrown into boiled with bubbles as big as the fist. The third vessel into which he went why there's three, I don't know, except for the fact that the Irish really like threes and this might be magic, is warmed so that its heat and cold were rightly tempered. So it's a nice warm bath. Then he comes out and the queen, who's the wife of Congevere, puts a blue mantle on him and a silver brooch and a hooded tunic. And he sits at Conquivir's knee. And that was his couch always after that. Oh, so he's seven years old at this point, the text says. Oh. He's seven. Yep, he's not a teenager. He's seven. And he just, like, went berserk one day? Yeah. Like, this is this is who Kukulin is. He's a crazy kid. His boyhood deeds do not make sense. No, they do not. So now we kind of jump back to the main text, and we now have a section called the Death of Orlam. So now we're starting to get into the sections of the deaths. This section begins... <sighs> with another place name. So they've come to a new place, the army's marching forward, and Kukulin overtakes the charioteer of Orlam. So not Orlam himself, but the charioteer of Orlam, who is the son of Aleel and Maeve. So this is the son of the king and queen. And he overtakes his charioteer, and the charioteer is cutting shafts. It is overbold what the Ulstermen are doing, if it is they who are yonder, said Kukulin, while the host is behind them. And he goes to the charioteer to reprove him, because he thought he was of Ulster and not a Connachtman. And he says, what are you doing here? Cutting chariot staffs, said the charioteer. We have broken our chariots hunting the wild deer Kukulin. Don't know why he's described as a deer here, as opposed to the Hound of Cullen. But help me, said the charioteer. Look only whether you are to select the shafts or to strip them. It will be to strip them indeed, said Cucullin. Then Cucullin stripped the shafts through his fingers in the presence of the other, so that he cleared both of them of bark and knots. So he, he takes like the stick of whatever tree this is, and apparently his hands are so calloused, they're just like sandpaper, and he just makes them into perfectly peeled, polished mm -hmm. sticks. Uh, for chariot shafts. That's a good talent to have. A very handy talent to have. But the charioteer 
gets kind of nervous because he's like, this is not an ordinary guy. So again, apparently Colin can just show up and he looks fairly normal when he's not hulked out. He's just a 17-year-old. And so the charioteer gets really nervous about this because he knows this isn't normal. And he says, this cannot be your proper work that I put on you. You don't expect someone who has such strength to be stripping wood for chariot staffs. And Cucullin says, well, whence have you come? Who are you? The charioteer of Orlam, son of Alil and Maeve, said he. And you? asked the charioteer. My name is Cucullin, said Cucullin. Alas, said the charioteer, because he's pretty sure that he's about to die. Yeah, I would be too. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm expecting here. Fear not, said Cucullin. Where is your master? He's in the trench yonder, said the charioteer. Go forth with me then, said Cucullin, for I do not kill charioteers at all. Now hold on a minute, because this is really wholesome. Until you get to the next sentence, which reads, Cucullin goes then to Orlum, kills him, cuts his head off, and shakes the head before the host. Then he puts the head on the charioteer's back and said to him, Take that with you, said Cucullin, and go to camp. And if you do not go, a stone will come to you from my sling. And that is the death of Orlum. Cucullin has a strange sense of ethics. He won't kill the charioteer, because the charioteer is like the messenger. You don't kill the messenger unless the messenger doesn't do what you want. And then you kill the messenger. Well, the stone kills the messenger. The stone kills the messenger. But it it sort of makes sense in terms of you kill the warrior and not the chariot driver. I guess. That sort of makes sense. You don't kill the servant, you kill the warrior. But at the same time, it's kind of arbitrary. Now, there's a very, very short follow-up story to this called The Death of Maek Garak, which is very short. And it just says... Then the Mechgarak waited on their ford. So this is a group of people. These are their names. Lan and Ualu and Diliu and Meslayer and Mesleach and Meslethan were their three charioteers. They thought it too much what Kukulin had done to slay the two foster sons of the king and his son and to shake the head before the host. They would slay Kukulin in return for him and they would themselves remove this annoyance from the host. So they do not have a very good idea of the kind of warrior that Kukulin is. They cut three aspen wands for their charioteers that the six of them should pursue combat against him. He killed them all because they had broken fair play towards him. How? I don't know. Maybe it's supposed to be one-on-one? That's what I would assume, but we already know that Kukulin played hurling 150 against one. Yeah. So I don't know how this is not fair play against Kukulin, because the rules don't seem to apply. I don't know why he thinks he needs a reason. Neither do I. But anyway, Orlum's charioteer was then between Alil and Maeve. Kukulin hurled a stone at him so that his head broke and his brains came out over his ears. Wait, so he did kill the charioteer? He does kill the charioteer. Thus, it was not true that Kukulin did not kill charioteers. However, he did not kill them without reason. So... (laughs) Alright, so he's picked one profession that he needs a reason to kill, and everyone else, he doesn't, is what I'm getting here. I guess. So, there you go. That place is called Tomlachta, which means gravestones. And the reason that it is called gravestones is because of the little gravestones and the violent deaths, which Kukulin worked upon it. (laughs) Makes sense. 
And I just love that both translations say that it's not true that Cucullin didn't kill charioteers, but he didn't kill them without a fault. Like, he didn't kill them without reason. Both translations say this. So that sort of gives you the character of these Irish stories. Yeah. There's a couple more deaths, but we're going to get down to one entitled The Death of Lochu. In a stunning turn of events, Cucullin killed no one from the Sal in Orthi, which I don't know where that is. It has, a, it has a question mark in brackets next to it, so I don't think the translator knows where that is either. Maybe it doesn't exist. And that's why he didn't kill anyone from there. <laughs> yeah, who knows? But it's in Canal territory. Until they reached Cooling. Cucullin was then threatening that when he saw Maeve, he would throw a stone at her head. That was not so easy to him, for it is thus that Maeve went and half the host about her with the shelter of shields over her head. So Maeve has learned from this charioteer's death that she is going to have half of her army carry their shields above their heads and over her so that Kukulin cannot hit her with a stone and kill her. She could just stay indoors. Well, they're, they're, they're an army on the march. There's no indoors to stay in. Find a building. You're an army. You can take one. <laughs> you can take one. I mean, reasonably, yes. There was a waiting woman of Maeve's, Lahu by name, who went to get water, and a great troop of women went with her. Kukulin thought it was Maeve. He threw two stones so that he slew her in the plain. Hence, it is Athre de Loja in Cooling. So that's how that place gets its name. From Finnevar, Cooling, the host divided, and they set the country on fire, as you do at war. They collect there the women, boys, maidens, and cattle, and so that they were all there in Finnevar. You have not gone well, said Maeve. I do not see the bull with you. Well, he's not in the province at all, everyone said. In unison. <laughs> Apparently. Well, he's not in the province at all. Oh, I would love for this to be animated because I feel like it would be just a really funny film to see. Yeah. One of the cowherds, Lothar, is brought up to Maeve, and she demands to know where the bull is. I have a great fear to tell it, said the herd, as in the cowherd. Mm -hmm. The night when the Ulstermen went into their pains, or their weakness, or whatever, he went there three twenties of heifers with him, so that he is at the black quarry of Glengat. Go, said Maeve, and carry a width between two of you, and... What's a width? I don't... No, I think I want to say it's like a a stick. It is like a like a withy willow. I've not heard this phrase. Really, it's like a um. Basically, it's a, it's a staff. Well, okay, it's not a staff. It's a slender branch so that you can sort of use it. It's like think of a cross between a staff and um. What do they use to spur horses on? A goad. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's like a sort of a goad. So you can it's it's a way of hurting animals. Yeah. Or a way to bind things. It's like a it's like a thin bendy branch that you can use. But the only reason that is included is because it's a place name thing. So again, we have the Dinshanicus. Then they bring the bull to Finnevar. The place where he saw the herd, Lothar, he attacked him so that the bull brings out the entrails of Lothar, and he attacked the camp with his 350s of heifers. So he's got 150 heifers and the bull that are attacking the men. Very well organized for cows. <laughs> I was gonna say. But maybe they all just go into like a stampeding herd, you know? And we sort of have like a Lion King moment here. So that's how Lothar dies. Then the bull goes out from the camp 
and they don't know where he went, and they were ashamed. Maeve then asked the herd if he had an idea of where the bull was, and this is apparently a new cow herd because Lothar's dead. And so they're still looking for this bull, and a wonderful warrior went the next day, Ualu, and he took a great stone on his back to go across the water, and the stream drove him backwards with the stone on his back. His grave and his stone are on the road at the stream. Leah Ualand is its name. So again, like we have these tiny little stories of how these places get their name. Why this guy went into a stream carrying a rock, I don't know. I guess to not get, I, I think like you carry a big rock so you don't drift away down the stream, but this apparently did not work because he just got crushed by the rock. So Maeve is still trying to get this bull. And as they go around a mountain, they find a new place to camp. And there, Cucullin kills Krond and Comdel, and a hundred warriors died with Roan and Roy, two historians of the foray. So apparently they've got historians with them, so they know that this is kind of a big deal. And as they came over Baroness Bokuling with the cattle and the stock of Kuling, they spent the night in a bunch of other places, including a place called Botha, because they made huts over there. So those of you who have been to Scotland or in Ireland may be familiar with Bothies, which I think are super cool and I would love to go Bothy bagging. So Bothies are like little shacks in the middle of the wilderness that you can go out and hike to and they're unlit, but basically they're shacks or stone shelters and you can stay in there. They've got little fireplaces so you can make a fire and camp out in them so you don't need to bring a tent. So you just go out and camp at that place and then go on. So it's great for shepherds because you can go out, check your sheep and then stay here and then go back the next day. But anyway, that's why it's called Botha, is because they made little Bothies there. What's Bothy bagging? Oh, so Bothy bagging. It's like mountain bagging. It's when you go and you you do like a string of hikes to each Bothy. So you tick off the list of, of, okay, I've been to this one, I've been to this one, I've been to that one. That does sound fun. Yeah. So that is on my bucket list, is to go Bothy bagging around Scotland. Yeah, let me know if you're uh, planning to do that during the summer. Maybe I'll come join you. You should if we, you know, if we can get out. I figure it's a way to be fairly safe during COVID is, you know, go go out in the middle of nowhere and go bothy bagging. Okay, so we have a couple more place names. And so I'm going to skip some of this section. So here we have another death. Because all of like this entire section is just named the death of, the death of, the death of. This one is entitled The Death of Nad Crantail. Yeah, You're just making these name. names up. I'm really not. I swear I'm not. <laughs> what man have you to meet Kukulin tomorrow? Because at this point, they're just sending people out to try and stop Kukulin, and it's not going to work. But again, you have like the rules of fair play. It's a bad rules. <laughs> bad rules. Bad rules. We can find no one to meet him, said Maeve reasonable. So let's have a peace until a man can be sought for him. Whither will you send to seek that man to meek Cullen? said Alil. Well, there's no one in Ireland who could be got unless Croy Macdair can be brought or Nad Crantail, the warrior. Croy will not come, said one of his followers. He thinks enough of his household has come. So go and try the other guy because this guy's not doing it. And so they go and they try and get Nad Crantail. As are the rules of fair play, one of the messengers goes to Kukulin and says, Hey, Nad Crantail is going to meet you tomorrow, and it's unlucky for you because you're not going to be able to withstand him. And Kukulin's response is very blasé, and he, he just says, Eh, 
That doesn't matter. That is just his response. That does not matter, said Kokolan. So... <laughs> I was expecting him to kill the messenger, so that's a step up. It is a step up, you know? So, Nadkrantail goes the next morning from camp, and he takes nine spits of holly, sharpened and burned. So he's got steaks. I'm going to kill Balder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now Kokolan was there catching birds. I don't know why. That whole gesture series you just made. I, I need to see if I, if there's some way I can make some of your, your faces into gifts. Just turn them all into gifts. <laughs> so anyway, Kukulin's catching birds, as, you know, young 17-year-old men do. There's Charioteer and Chariot were with him. Ned Crantail takes these holly spears and chucks them at Kukulin. And Kukulin performed a feat onto the point of that spear, and it did not hinder him from catching birds. So he's, he's still doing catching gymnastics? birds. Yeah, he's just parkouring around these spears that are being thrown at him while he's catching birds, apparently. He's doing, like, a Legolas move in The Hobbit when Legolas, like, jumps up the falling buildings. I hated that entire film series. Like, I just... Ugh. The Sad. Hobbit? Yeah. Yeah, I only saw the first one, and I was like, I, I get it. I'm done. It's, it was just, they took the last 30 pages of the book and turned it into a three hour long movie. A lot of it seemed just excessive amounts of adding nonsense to a perfectly good book. It really was. But you know, you gotta milk that cash cow, I suppose. So, this is exactly how Kukulin does it. The flock flies away from Kukulin, and Kukulin goes after the flock of birds. And he goes on the points of the spears like a bird from each spear to the next. Is he aware that he's in a fight? <laughs> I don't think so. I think he just sees like, he's like, oh, look at that, you know, a great stepladder. And he just jumps up these flying spears in the air. So there we go. And it seemed to everyone that Kukulin was in flight pursuing these birds. Your Kukulin yonder, says Nadkrintail, has gone in flight before me. That is of course, said Maeve. If good warriors should come to him, the wild boy would not resist. And this vexed Fergus and the Ulstermen. Tell him, said Fergus, that it was noble before the warriors while he did brave deeds. It is more noble for him to hide himself when he flees before one man, for it were not greater shame to him than the rest of Ulster. Hey, yeah, he ran away. He's lost. There you go. So, Kukulin was not aware that he was in a fight, as you say. And so Kukulin's like, well, who's saying this? Who dare challenges me? And Fiacha, one of these other men, says, well, Nadkrantail, you, you ran away from him when he was checking spears at you. Though it were that he should boast, the feat that I have done before him uh, is no more shame to me, said Kukulin. He would by no means have boasted it had there been a weapon in his hand. You know full well that I kill no one unarmed. Let him come tomorrow. And I will not flee before him. So apparently the, the Spears of Holly did not count as weapons. Kukulin did not see it that way. So he's now challenging him to one-on-one -on -one fighting here. Increasing questions about this man's mental state. <laughs> he's 17. Gotta remember those hormones are going crazy. Yes. I remember when Puberty, I was 17. You know. <laughs> catching <What>? birds and... <laughs> Not noticing spears. You didn't have to go in one-on-one -on -one combat when you were 17? Not that I remember. <laughs> so Kukulin came to the appointed meeting place, and he threw the hem of his cloak around him after the night watch, and did not perceive the pillar that was near him, which was of equal size with himself. And he embraced it under his cloak and placed it near him. 
Then Nad Crantel came, and his arms were brought with him in a wagon. Where is Cucullin? He's over there, says Fergus. It was not thus he appeared to me yesterday. Are you Cucullin? And if I am, says Cucullin, if you are indeed, I cannot bring the head of a little lamb to camp. I will not take the head of a beardless boy. So he's like, you're just a kid. It is not I at all. Go to him around the hill. So Cucullin goes to Logue, which is his charioteer, and says, smear a false beard on me. I cannot get the warrior to fight me without a beard. So he's like putting on a fake beard to get the other guy to fight him. Also, give me some Groucho Marx eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. So again, the story gets more and more ridiculous, which is why it's one of my favorite Irish stories. And the fact that it is the pinnacle of Irish literature just makes my heart happy. So, Cucullin, now with his false beard, however you would like to picture that in your head, shows up to fight Nad Crantail. And so Nad Crantail thinks that that beardless boy was not Cucullin. But anyway, he shows up and says, Take the right way of fighting with me, Nad Crantail says. You shall have it, if only we know it, says Cucullin. I will throw a cast at you, and do not avoid it, said Nad Crantail. Well, I will not avoid it, except on high, says Cucullin. And Nad Crantail throws a cast at him, and Cucullin leaps on high before it. So apparently this is a way of right fighting with spears, is the, the one rightful way to avoid the spear, because they've, they've established this beforehand. <laughs> I am going to throw a spear at you. Do not dodge. But I am allowed to jump! <laughs> Yeah, basically. So anyway, you've got the rules of fair engagement, essentially, which are being explicitly stated here. And Cucullin dodges and now says, avoid my throw. Because once you know your opponent has had a turn, you can have a turn. And Cucullin throws a spear, but it was on high, so that from above it alighted in his crown and it went threw him into the ground. Alas, you are the best warrior in Ireland, said Nadkrantail. I have 24 sons in the camp. I will go and tell them what hidden treasures I have, and I will come that you may behead me, for I shall die if the spear is taken out of my head. So, the spear has gone through his head and impaled him in the ground, and he can't really move. <laughs> and take the spear out of his head. Like, it's just gone through his head. And so Ned Crantail, with the spear in his head, goes back to camp, and everyone came out to, to meet him. He's Phineas Gage. Oh, wait, no, no, I am, I am. The spear has not gone necessarily through his head. The spear has impaled his head and taken his head off. Um, what? And the reason I know this is because Ned Crantail goes to camp, and when everyone comes to meet him, they say, where is the madman's head? <laughs> so his head is detached yes. and pinned to the ground. Yes. But his body is walking back to camp. Yes. What? How? Why? Now. What? This is not altogether unfathomable in Irish lore because... I was going to say it's pretty unfathomable <laughs> in like reality. Yes. The head is supposedly where your soul is. Like, it's not in your heart. It's not in your chest. Like, Old English talks about the mode, the spirit, the chest, the heart. Mm -hmm. But in Irish culture, all of that is up in your head. So your head can get taken off. And, like, Cullen's beheaded people before. And he holds their head up. And that is a way of gaining power over somebody else, is by beheading them and killing them. Yep, you've got a lot of power over someone who's still have a head. <laughs> yes, both physically and spiritually and, you know, socially. So, Nadkrantail has said, 
okay, if you're a really good fighter, I will get you these things from my sons. And he has to fulfill that, essentially. So this is like an instance of the revenants that we've seen in some of the Norse sagas. Like the body has to go back and finish what it needs to do, but the head is still impaled. So there's this weird instance of the body needing to do what it's been set out to do because one, it's been stated that it needs to be done. And also because Kukulin's spear has gone through the head. And so that's like Kukulin's intention towards his enemy. And so if you literally have someone else's stick in your head, you have to do what they want you to do. So that's sort of what's going on here. And there are other instances in Irish lore where heads are cut off and they continue to speak. They continue to prophesy afterwards. Like you have to destroy the head. And that's why, is it Glaumer? Where they, he cuts off his head and puts it underneath his butt, essentially, yeah. to keep him from coming back. He does that with Car the Old, at least, Gretir does. I think he might also do it with Glaumer. Right. Yeah. And this is in part why, because this entire world at the time has this really big issue with stopping the head from coming back because the head still has power even after death. So that's why this little instance is here. And it also, it illustrates Kukulin's spiritual power and magical power as well as his physical power. So not only is he the best warrior, he's also the best magic user in a sense. So that is what this episode is talking about. And then I think the last little section I have here is called the death of the boys, because we haven't had enough boys being killed in this episode already. So the boys of Ulster had consulted in Eamon Macha. Wretched indeed, said they, for our friend Kukulin to be without help. So this, these are the same boys who Kukulin apparently killed 50 of beforehand. Like, this is still his troop. A question indeed, said Fiacha. Shall I have a troop among you and go and take help to him therefrom? So three fifties of boys. Again, we have this like three full 50 thing. It's 150. So it's sort of like the long hundred that we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. It's just a big troop. They go with their playing clubs. And that was the third of the boys of Ulster. And remember, the boys of Ulster are not affected by these pains, so they can actually go out and help. Right. And Alil sees them and says, a great host is at hand to us over the plain. And Fergus looks at them and recognizes them and says, they're armed with lacrosse sticks. <laughs> yes, essentially, yes. It's like, oh, those are the boys of Ulster. They must be here to help Kukulin. And Alil says, let a troop go against them without Kukulin's knowledge, for if they meet him, you will not withstand them. Which makes sense. If you come face to face with mm-hmm. Kukulin, you're gonna die. So three fifties of the warriors go to meet them. So this isn't a fair battle. It's three fifties against three fifties. And they fell by one another so that no one escaped alive from the abundance of the Troys of Leotol. Hence it is the stone of Fiachra, for it is there he fell sense. And Alil, kind of realizing that this is not working, just sort of says, well, I need to make a plan. You gotta appreciate the Irish straightforwardness in this saga. I keep saying saga. It's not a saga. It's an epic. So I'll try and catch myself on that one. Or call me out on it when I do it. I've honestly noticed you doing that before, and I was just like, I guess Irish tradition might have sagas. They really Zoe don't. I just, she's no. talking about. <laughs> This is me conflating the terms. See, there's a bunch of different epics and there's a bunch of different folk tales. And I just, there might be a term for it, but I don't recall it at the moment. Um, 
Ask Cucullin about letting you go out of this place, for you will not come beyond him by force, because his flame of valor has sprung. For it was customary with him, when his flame of valor sprang with him, that his feet would go round behind him, and his hams before, the balls of his calves on his shins, and one eye in his head, and the other out of his head. A man's head could have gone into his mouth. Every hair on him was as sharp as a thorn of hawthorn, and a drop of blood on each hair. Question. Yes. If one eye is out of his head, where is it? It's like hanging out of his head. Oh, yeah. okay. So it's like one's popping out of his head. Like, you know those really stupid cheap glasses that have springs and like the eyeballs that come off? Yep. That's what I picture. Yep. So he's got one eye out of okay. his head and one that's like going in. And so this, again, is his torque, which is occurring to him. And he doesn't recognize comrades or friends. And so he'll kill anybody. So you just have to let the man hulk out. So that is the killing, that is the death of the boys, because when 150 go against 150, they all die. So now all of Cucullin's, like... But on both yes. sides? Okay. So now they are all dead. There's a couple more feats of Cucullin where they basically go through instances of what he does in his torque. So these are the episodes that I wanted to get through, and we basically have deaths of people, Cucullin killing people, and kind of establishing Cucullin's weird character. And establishing that nobody can stop Cucullin. And the reason that we need this episode and the reason that we need all of this backlog is because next time we're going to get into the gods. So in the next episode with the Toyn, the gods are going to come in. The first god that comes in is going to be Morgan. Lug also comes in as well, which is his... Surprise, she isn't already here. <laughs> I know. You would you would think... But no, so the Morrigan is going to pop up because at this point, somebody needs to stop Kukulin and it ain't going to be immortal. So that will be for next time because I didn't want us to get too bogged down in all of the death tales because it can get a little, little bit long. So hopefully this week will be kind of a, a shorter episode <laughs> and then we can get into the gods popping in next time. So there we go. Right. That is the series of deaths that occur in this second section. So there's a lot of place names going on here. And I do have a couple notes on the magic that's going on, which I thought would be interesting to discuss. So one of those is the Druids, because we talked about the Ogham Stone last time and the role of the Druids last time. And then we also had the Sorceress that Kokolan gets with at the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. And so the Druids were sort of the leaders of the pre-Christian Irish religion belief system. And they had three primary roles, which were the Philae, which is the poet, the Fede, the prophet, and the Druid, which is the priest. And that's where they get their name, is Druid comes from the word for priest. All three of these roles overlap. The reason that this is very important is because while we have instances of Druids within the saga, there's also a great emphasis on the heroes of these stories being a part of this tradition as well. I'm pointing at you because you said saga oh, again. Dang it. No. <laughs> this is what I get for really enjoying the sagas too much. In this epic, epic. It's an epic. Beowulf's an epic poem. This is an epic poem. Yes, but my point is, in fact, that it is an epic poem. There is poetry involved. So the magic of the story of the Toyn and the magic of the main characters in the Toyn is that 
they fill the roles of poet, prophet, and priest. So Cucullin, when he puts up that little Ogham stone and speaks the verse, he is invoking magic through the power of the poet, the poetry, the prophecy, and the geish, which he conjures that we talked about, of how he's going to kill everybody before he's turned away by the naked women, and the role of the priest by invoking all of these forms. And also the fact Mm -hmm. that he is sort of a demigod because his dad is Lug, who is one of the gods of the Tuthididanen. So I thought that was an interesting note. In Anne Ross's The Pagan Celts, she notes the symbol of the severed head, and especially the talking head, was particularly powerful since the druids held that a man's soul was housed in his head. So we talked about that. But it is, as Ross says, the seat of the soul, the essence of being. So a severed head would also protect him who decapitated it, and its powers might also be transferred to the victorious warrior. Ross lists the other attributes of the severed head as symbolizing, one, divinity itself, as it was the possessor of every desirable quality. It could remain alive after the death of the body. It could avert evil and convey prophetic information. So Cucullin's beheadings display his prowess so that their strength was transferred to him in a magical essence and a protection for the challenge that he had set up. So when he hands over heads and when he puts them on pikes and all of that, he's essentially protecting his own borders as he should as the watchdog of Ulster. And those are the primary notes that I have here. So yeah, a lot of this is just the Dinshanicus, the place wisdom, the place lore of what's going on and the importance of the head and the beheadings and the comparisons to like the berserkers and the other traditions that we do have in sagas and other epic poems. Fair, fair. That's what I've got. Yes, so that is what I've got for this episode of The Twine. Hopefully a little shorter than last time, because I know last time went pretty long. It's all right. I think we were in the right area of length this time. Good. Yes. But we do still have segments to do. I was going to say, shall we jump into our segments here? We shall. All Tobras. Okay. That's death. Well, there's a lot Those of deaths. We have. <laughs> We've got a lot of deaths in this one. I appreciate the I don't kill charioteers except when I do business. I was going to say that one's really good. The only other one I could think of was the beheading when your man just gets shafted through. That's right. And then his that body goes good. back and everyone's like, where's his head? His head is gone. And like, yeah, that's, I think that one was the best. But, it, but that like, that's the only problem with it is everyone's like, where's his head? They don't seem surprised that he's come back dead. But the fact that his head is gone is more surprising. You're going to make it hard for him to explain what he's doing there, too. <laughs> exactly. How are you going to get all the goods to Kukulin if you don't have a head to explain it with? Oh, man. Okay. D&D game. You could always use the naked women tactic, I guess. Could. I think that depends on your group. Depends on your party. specific Yeah. Yeah. You know, make sure that you have everybody's okay with what level you want to play at there. But, you know, you could always have scantily clad women coming out, I suppose. Or, you know, you could just have women coming out instead of an army. Yeah. You know, who are not dressed up in battle gear. So adapt as you will for that one. There could be an interesting um, problem for the party to solve in the form of 
a murderous child. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. Especially one who's killed like 50 other kids. Yeah. How do you deal with little little kid Kukulin? He's unstoppable and dangerous, but also he's a kid. It's horrific. Yeah, that would be interesting. You could have like a, a cursed cursed kid that your players have to deal with now. I mean, I suppose you could adapt some of the place names, or you could incorporate place names in your campaign when you're when your characters do something really interesting. You can have whatever NPC is there name those places after your characters or their exploits, what they've done. So you can you can have an element of Dinshanicus in your game, and that makes the mm-hmm. lore a little bit more real and lived in. It's true. And you could do that with the history of it, too. So maybe it's the king's great-grandfather. I feel like it's kind of common in, at least in in the campaign settings I've seen, for things to just, like, we're going to name the major, like, roads and, and rivers and cities and basically name them at random because that's how we do it in America, is stuff just oh. has random names. But if it's a setting that people have lived in for a while like more than just a couple hundred years, then there can be like, oh, we call this Ford, you know, Two Stones Ford because of that guy who accidentally killed himself with stones in the Ford. Exactly. And and it's one really easy way to make a world seem very much more lived in is if you have a place that does have a name, then you have to have a backstory for how it got that name. And generally at this point, in most ye old fantasy settings, shall I say. The history is not that old. So you're going to have a lot of oral history, especially in smaller towns. So it's going to be like, oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so's great-great-grandfather did this one thing at that one place, and that's why the town is called whatever. And you can still, like, use, like, a random table or something to make the names, but then you have to... Fill in the backstory. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think of the equivalent of a backronym, but I was coming up empty. Oh, I like that, though. I think backronym is just great. Back formation. No, that's linguistics. Ooh, I like that. I don't know. That kind of thing. Definitely. And you you can do that with people, too. Like, Kukulin is named Kukulin because he's the Hound of Cullen. Like, that's Mm -hmm. not this kid's name. So you can have big warriors or important people just be called, you know. Well, it's like um, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. He's known as the Rock, and Mm -hmm. you know who you're talking about. So you can have have characters like that. It's like, oh, why are they called the Hound? Why are they called whatever? It's because they have that backstory. So that's another way you can can incorporate that. Anything else? Talking heads. Talking heads. Talking heads are always great. That's a great way to, like, give a quest, too. And plus, then your characters have to carry around a talking head. Yeah, that's true. Which which could be great fun. <laughs> That'd be that could get pretty fun, especially if like oh I can't see like move move it over so you have to move the head over and deal with that. But place names, yeah, Dinshanicus is kind of the big one there. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? In states unborn and accents. Echoes in modern unborn. culture. Oh, yes, echoes in modern culture. Yeah. Do we have any here? I mean Dinshanicus. Yeah, there you go. The the place wisdom, the place names, because a lot of these place names still exist, whether they've been, um, I'm going to get the word wrong, Anglicanized. Got it. Uh, whether they've been Anglicanized or not in Ireland in particular. Did I get it wrong? Dang it! What is it? Anglicized. Anglicized. Whatever. Yeah, because Anglican the is the religion. church. <laughs> oh, kill me. It's been such a long week. 
Oh my gosh. See, this is what I get for reading about like demons and stuff all week. Is this like the Protestants and the Anglicans or the Catholics? And oh, the English came into Ireland and they changed all the names into English names, is my point. <laughs> Anyway, whether they're still in Irish or whether they've been changed, the place wisdom is still there. So I'm trying to think of some American examples, but American names don't tend to be to be like that in, in the U.S. at least. But, I mean, it's like you said, we sort of just name things haphazardly. There are a bunch that are just kind of warped from something that comes from another language. That's like, true. Like, um... A lot of the Native American names are pretty mangled. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's true. Nevada, the state, is named after Sierra Nevada, the mountains. Sierra Nevada is what the Spanish called them because they were snowy mountains. So we have a desert state that's named Snowy. That's true. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. Oh, Canada? Canada means village. Because someone asked... Uh, <laughs> What's this place called? And the and the native said, this is my village. This is a village. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's like the River Avon. It's like Avon means river. There's, there, there is a place in Central America, the name of which is supposedly like an indigenous name, but it literally translates to, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> that's amazing. Because that's how they, that's how they responded when someone said, uh, what's this place called? They're like, what? They're like, I don't know. I don't <laughs> like, know what ah, you're saying. Good, man. Yes, this place is what? <laughs> Beautiful. Future Mac speaking. The place that Past Mac is trying to remember is the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. The word Yucatan is Mayan for I don't understand you. Uh, so that's okay. So that's not technically what Denshonicus is, but we're going to roll with it. Where were we? Yeah. So the, the echo in modern culture here is place names, place wisdom, and sort of how places get their names. Like Stratford-upon-Avon, right? The place where Shakespeare was born. Yeah, that's right. We're talking about Denshonicus. I don't know why I'm, I'm thinking Anglican. Now you've got me. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Anglicizing stuff. Anglicizing. Yeah. I mean, there are there are places out west that are named stuff like uh, Jones Creek or, or Jones yeah. Mill. And it's like, there was a guy named Jones. He had a mill. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess it's less, I don't know, I would think it's less common in the US and it tends to be more common in older places in Europe because you have, I guess, more of that history in terms of... Uh, We don't have as much written history over here, yeah. And all of the spoken history that dates back more than a few hundred years, we kind of ruined. Yeah, it's all gone. (laughs) Jeez. There's there's a couple of really interesting native names, like uh, Denali is the name of the biggest mountain in North America that's up in Alaska. And it used to be called Mount McKinley, and they, they did officially change it over. All Alaskans just call it Denali, and that means the Great One. So that's, you know, that's an example. Or the name of the people is Denina or Denaina, depending on how you want to say it, and that just means the people. You know, pretty straightforward, yeah. that makes sense. I think a lot of the surviving Native American names are, are stuff a lot more like Dinshanicus than colonial American names. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because, I mean, New York doesn't really have much of a Dinshanicus besides we're going to name it after York, but it's the new one. So, (laughs) not very. There's a book on this that I read over the summer. Ooh, do tell. It's called uh, Names on the Land, and it's about, like, the history of uh, American place names. And it covers both colonial American and Native American, the the ones that survived. Oh, 
and like the difference between them in terms of how they got there. That's amazing. I love it. Hang on. Do I have it with me? I do. Let me grab one of my favorite books. It's out of print now. So this is one of my favorite books ever. It's called English Place Names by Kenneth Cameron. And I've got loads and loads of little sticky notes. It talks about the history of English place names obviously. But the back of the book has a beautiful appendix, which is just common elements in English place names. And it is one of my favorite D&D tools because it gives you the prefixes and suffixes of common place names and then tells you what they mean and from what language they come from. That's useful. It's very useful. So you've got like Kirk, which is church, which is Old Norse from mm-hmm. Kirkja. Or Scots from Kirk. Yeah, there you go. Croft, meaning a piece of enclosed land. We've talked about that one before, coming from the Old English Croft. Or Caster or Chester, which comes from the Old English Caster, meaning city or town or a Roman fortification. So that one's very useful. Yeah, but I'll see, I'll see if I can list a couple of these because they're very fun, and you don't expect some of them if you're not as familiar with the Old English and Old Norse. But yeah, so there we go. Dinshanicus, place names. One of the more useful, I guess, system agnostic D&D source books, like, uh, but I mean, it doesn't include any rules, so you can use it with whatever edition or game, is a book on names that Gygax wrote that covers stuff like that. That's amazing. It's like the elements of English place names, how to name a tavern, that kind of thing. I love it. And there's, I mean, there's a bunch of generators like that online now too, that you can just, you can just go through. Yeah. I usually make my own. I do too. I think it's more fun to make your own. And and again, you can get more into the history of of the place you're creating. It means I have a lot of exceptionally complicated Excel spreadsheets. I would love to see those. That looks amazing. I have a note app, like the notes app on my phone. I have one that is just names that I pick up in all the readings that I do for my dissertation. And I can just pull a name off of that whenever I need to in a session. It's amazing. It's the greatest thing I've ever done. That's a good idea. Well, I try and sort them by where they're from so I can be Mm -hmm. consistent. So if my players are in one nation, I'll pick names that have a similar group. And then if they're in a different nation, I can use a different type of name. And that way you can sort of, again, get sort of the history of a person based off where their name comes from. I do a similar thing, except it's town names. I I like to write down the more interesting names I find when I'm... I take a lot of cross-country road trips because my family all live in various places on the East Coast and I'm in the industrialized garbage scape that is the Midwest. (laughs) Yeah, it makes sense. And whenever I whenever I take these road trips, I like to avoid the highways and go through the back roads because it's more interesting. So I take note of a lot of like place names. Yeah. So far, my favorite is there's I don't even know like what this place actually is, but I just saw on a sign Hollow Bible. Oh my gosh. Yeah, like that's a good. That name. is a good one. That's a great one. There's um, what is it? It's like Oyster Gulch or something. In Alaska, also which good. I also I always thought was really fun. And then there's some of the best Irish names like Doolin and Dingle. Great town names. Dingle? Yeah, Dingle is an actual Oh, it's a town it's name. It's a town That's name. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was about to feel really sorry for some people. No, no, it's a town name. Or if you look at just Google a really old map and have a look at the place names that you can find on maps. And that's a really great way to find names for your characters or place names for towns. Okay. 
Now we can go on. Yes. Okay. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Dinshanicus. Dinshanicus. That's a big one. You can also incorporate those three Irish terms. So there's file, drew, and what was the third one? Faith. So file, F-I-L-E, which is poet. Faith, which is F-I-A-D-H, which is prophet. And drew, D-R-U-I, or drui, drui, that makes more sense, which is priest. So you can incorporate those if you want. And there, the Irish word for magic was emboss. So you can also use that as well. I mean, it's mostly just those place names. Yeah. I mean, if you if you want to check out the blog, I'll, I'll put some of those names up in our big list of names for you guys. And that way you don't have to go paging through sections and sections of the deaths of different people. You can just yeah. We'll also put citations for all those books we just mentioned. All right. Street smarts. I feel like there's a lot of lessons that we can take from this. One, don't fight Kukulin. Yeah, definitely don't fight Kukulin. And just because you're a charioteer doesn't mean you're safe. Remember your guest list. Yeah, for real. Maybe don't let your five-year-old go out and play with a bunch of boys when he doesn't know the rules of how to play with other people. That's a big one. And if your five-year-old is some kind of murder machine, maybe consider doing something other than letting him go out at all. Yeah. Don't let your kids push you around. You know, have a firm hand in your parenting style here. I mean, like, I don't usually advocate for locking kids up. I'm pretty firmly against it, but I feel like in this case... If if your five to seven-year-old has a body count of 50 other kids, you might want to consider that option. If your five to seven-year-old has a body count... <laughs> also true. Consider some kind of institution. Mm-hmm. Or go all Monkey King and trap him under a mountain. Yeah, yeah. Because honestly, that character, the Monkey King, is who Kukulin reminds me of. Occasionally, he's just like a terrifying force of nature. Yeah. No, you're not wrong. That checks out. Also, if your kid randomly starts hulking out, you know, that might be a sign. Yeah, that's a sign of something. Yeah. Talk to a professional. Yeah, again, talk to your local priest, talk to your local leech, you know, whoever you have on hand. Just get it checked out. Yeah, to be clear, when we say priest, that is a broad category. You could also talk to your local shaman or witch. Yeah. You know, it's just as good. All encompassing here. I mean, I feel like that's pretty much the the street smarts here is don't cross Kakulin. And please just don't go to war over a cow. Just please don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like this, this whole thing did not have to happen. Also, cows are better organized than you think. Yeah, be aware. Like if you're if you are looking for a bull, please don't get stomped on. Like this is nothing else to say to that. Just bulls are dangerous, especially in Be aware herds. of cows. Yeah, be aware of cows. Just generally. <laughs> yes, I feel like that's a that's a good rule of thumb <laughs> in all situations. Be aware of cows. Have you ever heard of cooling? K U L N I N G. Yes, that's that's that uh, cow calling thing, yeah. right? Where they, mm-hmm. yeah, it works. All right, I've heard of it, but our listeners might not have. So please explain. Okay, this. so cooling is basically like an ancient Swedish Nordic herding call that is. It's similar to yoking, which is Y O I K, which is another form of singing. It's a little bit like yodeling. It's like an ethereal sort of yodeling song. It's very beautiful. I think it's very haunting that women would traditionally use to call home or call in the cattle. 
And I was out in Waterford a couple weeks ago when we were back in lower levels of lockdown visiting a friend and there's loads of, of cow pastures out there. And so we were out checking out these dolomites, which are these beautiful ancient standing stones that were put up years and years ago. And they're just out in fields and you can just go and check them out. They're very fun. And there were these cows hanging out and they were kind of far off. And so I said, what if I just tried this? And I did. And so (laughs) I kid you not, I kid you not, the cows walked over and I was like, this is not, this is not actually real. This is not actually happening. They came straight up over to the fence from, you know, a hundred yards out and when it was myself and my friend standing back and forth, she would come down, like she came down and the cows were not bothered by her. And so when I walked back and forth, they followed me. They And it was the spookiest thing. So if you do have cows in your area, try it and report back because it worked when I did it. And she did not believe me that this would work until I did it. And now she like, It was a weird experience. I did not expect to have this experience with cows. So please try it and tell me that I'm not alone here or tell me that it was just weird because I want to know either way. Can you demonstrate? Oh, Lord. I don't really want to demonstrate. Okay. Because it (laughs) would be. No, it's going to be really loud in my flatmate's home and I don't want to freak her out. there'd be this strange ethereal howling from the next rower and she would i think she would <laughs> burst in here wondering what the heck is going on but no that's fair. do that's fair. do look it up i think it's haunting i think it's very beautiful it is very very strange when you initially hear it so be aware if you do have cows try it i would love to know if it actually works or whether it was like a one-off thing. But it didn't work with sheep. We tried it with sheep. It didn't work with the sheep, but it worked with the cows. So I would love to know if this is an actual thing. But there you go. So that is what colding is. All right. Put that in the dictionary, too. <laughs> yeah, there we go. We'll put that in the dictionary. Okay. Best moment. This one's hard. There's not really a best moment. I feel like it's more of just a dr- most dramatic moment. I liked the and catching birds. Ooh. Yeah, especially because he didn't realize he was in a fight. Yeah. Yeah. This like this fearsome warrior comes up. Or no, you know what my favorite part was? The fake beard. Yes, absolutely. The fake beard. He's like, you're not a man. You're just a kid. You know what? That's probably why he doesn't have the the PMS symptoms. He's not old he's, enough. He's 17. I thought he was out of town at the time anyway. That's true. Well, he fits the, he fits the exclusionary parameters. No, definitely the fake beard. What do, what do yeah, you think I they... absolutely imagine it just being grease paint. You, yeah, you think? I was going to say, do, do you think they use, like, a skin and just cut, like, a hole where his mouth should be? Like it a rabbit skin be. and just tied it up? <laughs> <laughs> just tied it around himself. Oh, man. No, that one's pretty good. That one's pretty good. Okay. The court. Do we want to add to the court this time, or do we want to stick with... Stick with what we've uh, got. We don't really have too many new characters. There's going to be some new characters yeah, next time. It's slim pickings, but I feel like we should. Okay. I feel like we, we should do it every time. All right, go for it. All right, well, like I said, slim pickings. Yep. So I was thinking about this earlier because I was like, are there anyone, is there anyone worth taking? And there, there are a couple that are like maybes, but at the end of the day, I think that the dog I took from the Macduthos pig story needs a friend. So I'm taking the dog from this one. Oh! <laughs> the dog is the one who dies yeah that's fair i mean pretty much everyone in this episode dies yeah so 
you know. Okay. Fair enough. Okay, so you're taking the dog. That is a fearsome dog. Oh, he can go in the bestiary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we have the Hound of Cullen, not Ku Cullen, the person, but the actual Hound, who apparently is strong enough that he needs three chains and three people to hold him back. So pretty impressive dog there. So you pick the dog. Oh, man, who am I going to pick? Because I took Ku Cullen last time, right? I think you did, yeah. I think I will follow in my chain of bad decisions and... <laughs> And pick, uh, no, I'll pick Fergus. I will pick Fergus. I was going to say Concavir, but I'll pick Fergus because... Which one is Fergus again? So Fergus is cons- like a consultant to Maeve and Allele. And he he's the one who's giving all this background about Kukulin. So Concavir is like the other the other king. And I don't really want to pick him because he's like he's letting Kukulin get away with all of this. Sure. But Fergus seems to have a pretty decent head on his shoulders and he survived this long and he hasn't angered either Kukulin or Aleel or Maeve. So I'm going to pick Fergus. Okay. So there we go. Final rating. Do we want to do a final rating? Well, we did for the last That's one. True. So we He's should do it again two. so we can average them up. See, I feel like this one, I'm going to give this one a lower rating just because it. there's so many, like, the death of, the death of, the death of, and it just doesn't, there's so many pieces that just don't make sense and don't fit together. Yeah. Yeah, this one needed another pass in the editor. Yeah. Well, and it, part of it may be my fault because I did skip several sections because otherwise it's just too long. There's just so much death in this section. So part of that may be I my fault. I feel like that's another criticism, though, is that, like, <laughs> you felt the need to skip bits because it was just the same that's, thing over yeah, and over again. That's also, that's also fair. All right. Well, I'll, I'll let you make your rating first, so then I'll make, then I'll make mine. Um, there are a couple things that are entertaining, mm-hmm. but... Mostly it's just kind of repetitive and confusing and occasionally horrifying. True. So I'm going to go middle of the road and give it a five. Okay, fair enough. That's what I was going to give it. I was going to give it a five as well. So at least we're agreed on this one. So there's there's definitely some highlights here, but this is the weakest part of the toy, I would say. Because the beginning of it is very interesting. You've got the Ogham Stones, you've got the Pillow Talk, and then... Then you have all the death. And then in the next section, we're going to get into more of the supernatural happenings, which is where I find it gets very interesting. And then we get to the boss fight. So the next section should be quite a bit of drama. All right. Okay. And for our final section. Oh, yes. Do you have something? or I, I don't I do off it? the top of my head. So go for it if you'd like. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. So here's another one on eyes. Ooh, Okay. Work an eye salve thus. Take nut kernels and wheat grains, rub them together, add wine, strain through a cloth, then apply to the eyes. For acute pain and ache of eyes, mingle well crumbs of white bread and pepper and vinegar. Lay this on a cloth, bind it on the eyes for a night. Seems like it would make your eyes hurt more. I was going to say, that's just painful. Is this one of those remedies where it's like... You punch the person's arm, and then it's like, huh, your foot doesn't hurt anymore. <laughs> That's a brutal one. Thus shall a man work an eye salve. Okay. Take the nether part of strawberry plants and pepper, pound them well, put them on a cloth, bind them fast, lay them in sweetened wine, make somebody drop one drop into the eyes. I like the emphasis on make somebody. Yes. Because it feels like it's going to be very difficult. 
Because that's just it's yeah, Someone else has to do yeah, that. Yeah, it's like, no, I'm, I'm not doing that. That's what your grad students are for. <laughs> thus, the refrain continues through the ages. Work and I salve thus. Leaves of woodbind, woodmarch, strawberry plants, southern wormwood, green hellebore, calendine. Pound the warts much. Mingle with wine. Put into a copper vessel or keep in a brazen vat. Let it stand seven days or more. Ring the warts very clean. Add pepper and sweeten very lightly with honey. Put subsequently into a horn and with a feather, put one drop into the eyes. Oh, with a feather. That would be a pretty decent application. Work a dry eye salve thus. Take beetle nut. No idea. Looked it up. No clue. Weird. Okay. It's not in the old English plant names or anything. But see, I'm I'm really surprised by having strawberry show up more than once. I mean, they grow wild. Yeah, but like, why a strawberry? Like, what does that have to do with eye health? What does any of these things have to do with eye? Health? Okay, that's valid. <laughs> Especially like pepper, pepper and vinegar. Yeah. So take betel nut and sulfur, Greek olusatrum and burnt salt, and of pepper most, grind all to dust, sift through a cloth, put it on a fawn's skin. Let him, I assume that's the patient, keep it about himself, lest it get moist. Introduce a small quantity into the eyes with a toothpick. Ooh. Ooh. And it does actually say toothpick, or rather it says a tothgada, which means tooth spear. Oh, that makes sense. Well, see, I know that they have toothpicks. It just seems like a less appealing way to apply an eye salve. Yes, you want to do it very slowly. Yeah, yeah. Or like in the corner of your eye, you know, and then blink it in real rapidly. Afterwards, let him rest himself and sleep. And then wash his eyes with clean water and let him look in the water. Uh, That is, uh, open his eyes under the water. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Work eyes have thus. Pound thoroughly cumin and a strawberry plant. And souse with sweetened wine, put into a copper vessel or a brazen one, let it stand many nights, <laughs> wring the wart through a cloth, and clear the liquid thoroughly. Then apply to the eyes when thou may wish to rest. If the salve be too biting... Yeah, no kidding. Sweeten it with honey. Ah, oh, ew. Especially leave it out <laughs> for many nights. Yeah, many nights. Many, just all the nights. For diminution of the eyes, I looked this up. That's like when your pupil contracts too much. Ooh, okay. I love that they have words for this stuff. And then they're also like, eh, vinegar, pepper, throw some lemon in there. I don't know. Like, right. Ugh. Take olusatrum, mingle with spittle, anoint the eyes outwardly, not inwardly. That that checks out. <laughs> and that's the end of our eye salve Ooh, advice. Amazing. For some reason, spittle makes sense to me, but... I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why that was the part where you're like, oh yeah, you can spit in someone's eyes. That'll help. I mean, I would, I would rather like use my own spit to clean my eye than put vinegar in my eye. I it does not specify that it is the patient's spit. Okay, that's valid. <laughs> 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 to be fair, I don't know if they would care. Oh, none of those sound fun. They do not. None of those sound like they would help or work in any way. I am fascinated by how often they want you to put pepper in your eyes, because that sounds so painful. Yeah, but like the pepper and the vinegar, strawberries, I sort of understand, because like you can mash strawberries into a pulp, and if you add honey to that, it's like, oh, a refreshing face mask or something. But I wouldn't want to put any of that near my eye. (laughs) Nope. Mm -mm. No. No. So, yeah, listeners, we do not suggest trying these. Like, other, other of the remedies are more plausible, but don't try these. 
Or at least if you do try them, A, we have no liability, and B, tell us what happens. Yes, true. True. On both counts. Well, with that, I think that pretty much polishes us off. Yep. Okay. Well, I guess we'll see everyone next time. Thank you for listening to The Miniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcast to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Darn it, because you were smiling at me. You were grinning at me like, (laughs) she got it wrong. And I was like, I I did, didn't I? I got it wrong again. I was just going to let it pass. Don't. No. No. Wrong. (laughs) Anyway.